driving a car, what a concept, you know, that kind of. Remember Robin Williams? He was alive. Right? Am I wrong? No, right? Yeah, thank you. It was funny. Yeah. Yeah, right? But then he left us hanging. What? What, you guys knew him? <laughs> you guys friends? <laughs> anyway, we'll give it up for all these broken losers everybody's talking about. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know why. Why am I calling everybody a loser? I, I actually am embarrassed. I, you wrote it, and it was you put a space in broken, so I thought it was about like this new line of Barbie dolls called Broken. Um, <laughs> I wrote a whole bunch of jokes about uh, white privileged uh, guys uh, driving, which I realized is just regular Ken, so that was, anyways, um, yeah. But I, I have some, I have some of my own horror stories. Like, uh, my life's pretty good, generally. I'm pretty much done growing as a person. Uh, but I have had some, and like a lot of comedians, they are broken inside and out, you know, right? I mean, that's, but, you know, I also, like, um, uh, like I, my wife, I'm married. It's great. We have a really wonderful, loving relationship. And she bought me tickets to Hamilton. Yeah. And uh, I'm in Hamilton, trying to enjoy the show. Someone in front of me is a little too tall, frankly. And so the whole time, I'm like kind of leaning a little bit, right? Before intermission starts, I already got a crick in my neck, everybody. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, we all have different levels of things that hurt us, you know? And I just feel like, you know, everyone's talking about seeing bones and stuff, but you know, I also have my own kind of personal. <clears throat> like I got a new pair of shoes and, and I'm, I have kids and they're wonderful. They're really smart. We just got, they just got, my daughter got her first report card. She's already doing really good. She's the line leader, which apparently is good. And, um, and, uh, and I got a brand new pair of shoes because everything's going good. And I had to walk her to school. And uh, I got a little scuff on one of my shoes, guys. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Every, you know, every, there's pain and then there's pain, you know? <laughs> right? So. Uh, did you guys know that in, uh, pain is uh, bread in France? So that's something to think oh. about, right? Albon, right? Albon Pont, right? Where's that? That's East Coast, right? East Coast, you guys ever go to the East Coast? That's the best, right? And then it's quite frankly, it's better. Um, I don't know, why am I this arrogant person? I'm having fun. You guys had a full 90 minute long show. Steve pretty much headlined, you know? And then now it's also, I'm here too. And then that's okay. You know, a lot of the core people left already. That's fine, that's fine. It's fine, I don't hurt, I'm great. How long has this been? Guys, it's been three minutes and a half of a minute, which is what? How many seconds is that, guys? 210, right? Anyways, math, that's fun. You know what's broken is our school system. Because my kid's not that great, but she's getting good grades. Something's up. That's what I think. Something's not right. She's not that good. She doesn't even, it's all Spanish immersion. She doesn't even understand Spanish, I don't think. But they, she's, they're, they're nice to her. Um, it's good. This is good. This is, uh, this is not broken. Usually these things are broken, right? Anyway, I hurt myself today. Uh, see if I could feel. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> right? Focus, I focus on, yeah, focus on the pain. It's the only thing that's real. 
Anyways, uh, so, but I have hurt myself. I, uh, back in the 80s, we're talking about dancing in the 80s. I tried to break dance in the 80s. You guys remember break dancing? Yeah. And I did this, I did this move where I put my hand, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to fall for that twice. But <laughs> I did this thing where I did this thing and I did both, and I tried to hop around like a frog, which I think, I don't even, now that I think back at it, maybe I didn't even know what break dancing is. Now that I think about it, maybe I was just dumb. It was called the frog, you stick your tongue out, and, and then your uncle jumps over you. Is that right? No. <laughs> he called it the frog. And he's like, you got a frog in your throat, you know, and I'd be like, ah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, so that night, it was actually, it was like a weird function my parents brought me to, and I was a kid, and I, that night, and I, oh, I, so the, the part of the thing is I fell forward, and like, my, I knocked my teeth out. Have you done that before? Yeah. And then, uh, but also the same night, I found $5, which was like so much money to me. And that night, I feel like I was like, well, yeah, I hurt my teeth, but I also found five bucks. Like, those two things seemed equally, like, good and bad, like as if like, you know, like the balance of the force had was maintained. And then I was just thinking about like how my parents would have gladly given me $10 to not have done that at all, you know? <laughs> but to me, I was like, they were like, well, sometimes good things. Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Review. That was Natasha Muse, I believe. Some comedy stylings there. Got into the studio a little bit late, so we were hearing some of the previous shows that were here on the nighttime playlist thank you so much for listening in this is going to be an interesting show in that i'm going to be here for a little bit i'm going to play a clip i heard recently it's an audio clip from the chinese progressive association and this is harnessing the strength of a thousand rivers and it talks about the history it's the 45th or recently it was the 45th anniversary celebration from the chinese of the chinese progressive association and folks can find this on YouTube if you just type in um, Harnessing the Strength of a Thousand Rivers, uh, Chinese Progressive Association on YouTube. You can find it as well as their work. And then following that, I'm going to play a previous podcast that we recorded in October of 2016 when things were a little bit different, but not really that different. Uh, th- things were different, though. Maybe, I don't know. You can listen to it for yourself and see what you feel. I was curious to see what was happening at that time. And apparently there's just a lot of turmoil in the air, which there still is. So I don't know if that's reassuring or not. Do you want to say that there were recently, uh, this past week, there were walkouts or people like leaving the schools, I should say, uh, all across the country. There were reports of just many cities and towns and many states. And there are folks in Atlanta, for instance. There are some, the authorities, the authorities fucking things up as per usual. Uh, did not let some of the students leave the school grounds. And so there was a photo taken of students taking a knee. And there are also, there's a great photo of, I believe it's somewhere in California that the, the administrators wanted to lock the students in, which is just, oh my gosh. Uh, t- totally bringing the idea of the, the school to, to prison pipeline is so true in so many ways. This idea of you have to do what we say and we're going to literally lock you inside. Gross. Anyway, there's a great photo of students busting through this gate, and I think that's incredible. I was walking through the mission, and it was a bit rainy. This was a couple days ago, and there was a group of kids. They were a little bit further up, so I couldn't really talk to them. And they were you know, they're chanting gun control now, and that was very reassuring. And the idea that young people, as it often is, are the folks, not 
always. However, I feel young people are often not given a chance to really express themselves, and there are adults who say, we know what's best, yet the world's pretty shitty. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Th- things are unjust and unfair, and capitalism is killing people, and there's just we live in a total state of violence all the time. So... And I think for, I can only speak for myself, there is that feeling of being jaded. I'm not, you know, I'm in my mid to late thirties and I am already feeling exhausted and tired by so much, yet there's so much to be done. And I really appreciate when the next generations come, come out and say, we're not going to take this either. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're not going to stand for this. And I want to be conscientious of the language I use. We're not going to take it. See, now I'm, I'm quoting twisted sister and i don't know how i feel about that however we're going to play this sound clip and then following that there is going to be uh the show we did in october of 2016 this is from october 21st 2016 in which um i speak with pam tally from the chinese progressive association so i thought that would all fit in nicely and we had a speaker in one of the classes I'm in from the Chinese Progressive Association this past week and just hearing about some of the work they've done and how inspiring it is. And a lot of the the lessons and messages I kind of came out of that with was just recognizing the, the idea of really when one group or one organization does something for the people, it, it can amplify and it sends ripples and it sends hope and inspiration to every everyone else out there. So we're going to just do that today, I think. So... Yes, this will be uh, the first part will be a clip I haven't played before. And then following that will be a a repeat. A repeat? Yeah, a repeat. I try not to do that too often. Next week, Azalia will be in, uh, sitting in for me on the 23rd. So grateful for that. And coming up after this show at 2 p.m. is Women's Magazine with Global Val. I'm going to see if I can find a little bit of music in the meantime while I get this set up here. And trying to find some music that... Uh, I feel like folks want to, ooh, Lou Reed. All right. That sounds pretty good. However, but just one moment. My bicycle. The first is Dr. Sean Jinright. And this clip will be coming on in just a moment. So, yeah. When I go to Chinatown and I come out of the parking lot and the elevators open on Portsmouth Square and I look at everybody, I have in my mind, hello auntie, hello uncle, hello cousin, because it's my relatives, it's my family. Workers get off of work and play mahjong, talk to the cousin, the local gossip with the family, and sit around and talk. Just talk, you know, just so they can express themselves. The elders, busboys with students, with small shopkeepers, the beating down of our voices, of not being heard, those were all being unleashed and exposed. In this moment, CPA's 45th year reflects that it is still needed and still absolutely essential part of making a new world. People are talking about hashtag resistance now. Chinatown is 
one of the original hashtag resistant. Sometimes you have streams coming, tidal waves, rivers, and we were able to navigate it. We were able to follow it, guide it, really harness the, the energy of that to really build the, the movement that we're building right now. This is a, a, a moment in which it's so important for us to come together as a, as a people and to keep evolving and, and uplifting um, that kind of a spirit to make it real. 1971, around this time, we rented a space down the hotel in the basement, 350 Curtain. CPH, a gathering place. That's how CPA formed. Welcome back. So we're having some technical issues here. This is what happens when uh, I get in a little bit late and then I... Oh, goodness gracious. Anyway, we're going to get what we were planning to get in one moment, so please do stay tuned. And I guess it's radio, so it's it's no biggie here. That's the... With a DIY uh, operation here, that's what happens. And that's all right. It's very good. What else can I say? Uh, 45 was in California. I think he's still here. Ugh, we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. I, I have a lot of, and I recognize it. he represents a lot of terrible things, and I really appreciate when people stand up and there's a, or people speak out, or what are some good words to use that are completely open? When people fight back, does that work? I feel like that will be something that can happen. So this again, initially, is what I meant to play. Harnessing the Strength of a Thousand Rivers, A Look Back at Our Roots and Impact. And this was published by CPASF, and you can find this on YouTube. Following that, I will be playing a previous podcast, so stay tuned. When I go to Chinatown and I come out of the parking lot and the elevator's open on Portsmouth Square, and I look at everybody, I have in my mind, hello, auntie, hello, uncle. Hello, cousin, because it's my relatives, it's my family. In 1971, around this time, we rented a space down the hotel. It was a basement, 850 Curdy. The elders, busboys with students, with uh, small shopkeepers, the beating down of our voices, of not being heard, those were all being unleashed and exposed. The night of the eviction, around 7 o'clock that night, uh, uh, we got the call uh, that the sheriffs had, uh, were on their way to the hotel. In a day with no email, with no social media, and no cell phones, that we could turn out 5,000 people at a drop of a hat. The unity with each other, the love for each other, the protection of each other was so real at that moment. I'll, I'll always remember that. Vincent Chin would be alive today if he were not aged. The Justice for Vincent Chin campaign in San Francisco was the first time that the community became so awakened. As part of CPA, as part of that movement, um, that was 
a really important moment for me as a, an activist is this idea that we're all together and we have some understanding of what it takes. That if we don't fight, nobody's going to fight for us. amazing organizers at CPA reaching out and talking to workers at Yang Sing who were mostly afraid and um, really unwilling to um, get involved because they didn't want to risk losing their jobs. And that moment seeing these workers in uniform step off the bus and walk towards us and let the employer know that they deserved better. That was just such a powerful moment, ultimately led to these workers transforming their workplace not only for themselves, but for their co-workers and for all future workers um, at Yangtzeing. Should we call ourselves? So we had a red door. So oh, we call ourselves the Red Door Society. You know, Chinese always say, you know. We can't have workers, just workers. We want students and people who support mainland China. Well, we're, we're Chinese, we're progressive, and we're, we're a group. This is cause of Chinese Progressive Association. Bing, okay, <laughs> nobody opposed. Okay, so that's the name. SROs were housing built for single men workers, and now entire families, sometimes three generations, um, you know, grandma, parents, and baby live in this 70 square foot space. A lot of work to make sure that the families living in these SROs um, have access to services and are educated about their rights as tenants and involve them in advocating for better housing options. I joined Youth Mojo and CPA in um, the summer of 2010. I was in freshman year. When I came to CPA, I was like really amazed by like, the community, how everyone was able to be open and vulnerable to each other. Just like being um, really affirmative of my identity and everything that I am, and also it gave me a lot of tools to be able to talk to other people about um, what were the issues that we're up against. It's not just um, doing workshops, it's not just um, giving people tools, it's really being able to support their development emotionally, mentally, and also providing kind of mentorship and leadership that they rarely get in society these days. A lot of this had to do with harnessing your own um, strength. It was a lot of growth around realizing your own power and realizing how much value your experiences have and how you can use that in order to demand rights and demand change. You can't be progressive by yourself. You make progress with other people. 
by building movements that draw individuals and groups and other sectors to make a better world. CPA's 45th year reflects that it is still needed and still absolutely essential part of making a new world. People are talking about hashtag resistance now. Chinatown is one of the original hashtag resistance. This is a, a, a moment in which it's so important for us to come together as a, as a people and to keep evolving and, and uplifting um, that kind of a spirit to make it real. Sometimes you have streams coming, tidal waves, rivers. You had like so much always coming at us and we were able to navigate it. We were able to follow it, guide it, really harness the, the energy of that to really build the, the movement that we're building right now. You know, we might be six little blocks, but when we win something, it uplifts everybody, not just the Chinese community. CPA inspires so many sparks of change, not just in San Francisco, but in the rest of the country and the world. CPA should be really proud one seeks change, then everything is possible. But you have to seek change, then the, the world opens up. It's an unfounded statement. Changes that are needed. So on December 26th, it was raining, it was drizzly, nobody's gonna show up for a grand opening. 200 people show up. So that's 1972. <laughs>
the weekly review it's friday october 21st 2016 is this year over yet the election cycle is almost over thank goodness perhaps um it's been it's been quite a week it's been quite a fall there's a lot i mean there's just a lot of contempt in the air and discomfort and i think that's putting it very mildly i know i haven't slept through the night in about a month and I've talked to a lot of folks, and people are also having a lot of sleeping difficulties. Um, I was talking to JD, who had the show before, and he was also saying the same thing. And that seems to be a, uh, something that's going around. There's a lot of stress and a lot of despair. And I'm not necessarily here to, to cheer everyone up. That would be great, but I feel like it would have to be. I have to be honest to do that. I, as far as my caffeine goes, because I know everyone's really concerned about that. If you're a listener of the show, two weeks ago I had no caffeine for a while, and I was just last week I had a lot of caffeine, and I just kind of ripped through the show very quickly. I have some with me, and I'll probably have a little bit because moderation is probably the best thing that one can do. We have a super awesome guest calling into the show today. I'm very very excited. We met at a protest um, earlier this year, and that is. Uh, 
Pam Towley, and very much looking forward to having Pam call in on the show. Pam has over 45 years of activist and organizing experience, and I'll read Pam's bio um, in a little bit before Pam calls in. And just very much looking forward to speaking with Pam about her lifetime of activist work as well as uh, Pam was at Standing Rock recently, a few weeks ago. So very curious to hear from a a firsthand perspective. I've been following as much as I can online and people have been posting videos. And I think it's really important to talk to folks who are there in person to to find out what we might not be able to find out just from reading articles or, or not being there in person. And I think also... I know when I'm when I go to actions or I'm in places like the energy of the space can say a lot. Uh, you can have like chills uh, just from from being in a space and feeling that camaraderie and being there. So it's really crucial, I think, also just to give folks a chance to talk about that and to to in a way record what their experience was like. Because as many folks know, or maybe don't know, uh, the history that we're taught in this country and I'm sure in a lot of other countries is biased. Depends on who's teaching it, who's writing the history, who's telling the stories, and what stories are they telling from whose perspective. And there's a lot of folks who have been fighting the good fight for a very long time, and they don't necessarily have a chance to tell their stories, to tell their side. And it's really important that we hear from those folks who were there to hear accurate depictions and to find out things that we might not normally find out, because that can paint a, like a broader, more uh, intricate picture. It can, uh, there's more details, and I think it also makes us feel less alone. I opened up the show with a, with a song called I Know I'm Not Alone by Michael Franti uh, and Spearhead. That came out, that was during those, that terrible eight years <laughs> when we had a certain someone, Commander-in-Chief, I won't mention his name or his initial, not a fan, really not a fan. And war has continued on. I think there's a chart that was going around the internet, going around the internet for a while that was talking about how long has America been at war? And it's like pretty much forever. (laughs) Not exactly, but, and by America, I mean, however one wants to call this nation. So it's just this ongoing war is happening and everything with the election is just really disturbing for a number of reasons. And I think a lot of people feel a lot of fear and fear is motivating people to maybe do things that they wouldn't normally do or put in situations where if they had other choices, they might not go for some of the choices that are presented to them. And there's also just been a lot of um, like notable like anti-Semitic attacks um, in terms and threats towards journalists that have been out there um, as well, you know, as well as like racist attacks, um, xenophobic attacks, misogynist, like it's just kind of down the, down the line. And then there's of course that sticker, I'll probably read it. There's so much to cover. And it's so frustrating because it's like one wants to report on these things to to give to give a voice to it to like say, hey, by the way, this this stuff is happening. This is sickening. This is disturbing. This is scary. This is really reminiscent of the history of people being attacked. And using energy to do that instead of just energy to thrive in the world. And I feel like there's so much just based on survival. How do we survive? when so much time is spent on just reporting the negative things that are happening and preparing for the worst and trying to defend ourselves. And I feel that a lot. And as there's, there's a sticker, I don't even want to, I don't even want to mention, like part of me doesn't even want to mention it, but then by not mentioning it, am I being silent? Am I allowing it to happen? So there is a meme going around. There's a sticker. There's like a Trump sticker. I fucking, even, have, even the fact that I have to say his name is like, just this whole world is like over. It's like over, over, over. If he hadn't gotten all the attention that he's gotten for the past few decades, 
on TV and interviews. Like, if no one had, like, listened to him and his dad, his dad was an asshole, too. Like, this should have ended, like, decades ago. Decades ago. The fact that, like, I even have to waste my fucking time talking about this asshole. It's a waste. It's a fucking waste. So there was a sticker that was uh, two outlined figures. One was, like, in the Confederate flag, and the other one was a rainbow, like, pride. And it was the Confederate flag figure kicking the pride person. That was a bumper sticker. So inciting violence. And then there was, like, reactions to that online of, like, the rainbow person kicking back, um, sometimes with fire. And then there was one that was pretty problematic that was kind of like them hugging, uh, which can be read as like, why are you hugging Confederate? Like, why? No. Like, I understand from the perspective of wanting to solve differences. However, if there's someone that's representing something really abhorrent, like really terrible, um, there needs to be a conversation first and there needs to be apologies made and there needs to be a change in behavior before it's like, oh, everything's all right. Let's just hug it out when there's been years of oppression. So that, of course, as a LGBT, as a I joke, oh, I've been every, every letter of the LGBT, you know, alphabet, that's, you know, like, of course that hurts to see that image, like, beyond the normal, like, failure of accurate portrayal in media and or heteronormativity walking down the fucking street. Like, in addition to everything else, that doesn't help. And then also just seeing these, you know, the... the the memes out with the they're they're asking them to attack Jewish journalists like who like write against Trump, so it's like bringing up a lot. And I, ever since I can remember, you know, existing in this world, like recognizing my identity, like as being someone who was born Jewish, and someone who was assigned female at birth, or however one wants to label that. And the wording is problematic. Uh, so being aware of anti-Semitism and misogyny, and then when I came out as gay or bi. Then it was like, oh, there's homophobia too. Got to watch out for that. And then my transition, oh, there's transphobia too. Got to watch out for that. And, and also I'll, I will acknowledge that, yeah, there, there's many layers. And like, I also am privileged on, on top of that with, even with those identities. So I recognize that and want to put that out there and acknowledge that. There's just been this, like, how do I exist in a world where I'm taught that there are so many enemies who hate me just based on who I am, based on the body that I'm born into? And I think the more we can kind of all identify with that, because many of us are in that position, um, that we are attacked and or mistreated based on the bodies we're born into. Um, the, I mean, that's, I think the majority of us, that's the maj- a lot of us can recognize that, that we're, we're mistreated based on the bodies we're born into. And so to see that, that's already like in our, subconscious in our conscious we see it every day walking down the street we feel it we see it in the media like everywhere that's already existing and then i mean lucky for me i don't have a lot of faith in the system and i don't trust the system and so oh wow a person in power who's abusing their power and saying really problematic violent things for me that's not a fucking surprise it's not good um it's the the followers i think that are the real problems you know, if it's one person, then you can you sit them aside and be like, hey, this is why what you're saying is really not okay. Um, it's when there are the folks who don't question it, who look at that as an example and then feel like their behavior is okay, um, that their, their behavior will be condoned um, because someone else said that, someone else who's powerful said that. That's, I think, the scariest part. So I've been unable to sleep, I think, for a number of reasons for a while, and that's definitely adding to my stress. And... That's just really, it's, it's sucky because then it's, of course, like so many other things to talk about, so many other, you know, crimes happening in the world that I want to get to, I want to talk about. And then there's this, this fucking election day coming up 
and it's driving everyone mad and like as far as the two i said it on the last show i'll say it again this time i think it's it's two white supremacists who have the lead you got one who's really overt you got one who's you got one who's like really outright just saying these things like openly and you got someone else whose policies and whose warmongering um and previous positions are along those lines who and um i don't like either one of those options honestly and that, that to me feels really scary. I don't like the idea of bombing another country. I don't like the idea of supporting fracking or Wall Street. Like, it's not. And I do recognize that misogyny plays a role. And I, I, I say, in an ideal world, we would have no leaders. We would have no one that we have to elect to take care of things, to babysit us, for us to think of as someone who's, you know, acting for us, which I don't really think they are anyway. Um, and, of course, if we do have someone, I would love it to be for it to be a woman it would have to be a woman, though, whose policies I agree with, though, who's not a warmonger. So that's that's where I'm coming from. And I recognize that not everyone feels that way. And that also feels frustrating, knowing that so many people who had each other's backs before are now fighting. And at the end of the day, we all want to be safe. We all want to feel secure. And because we're being threatened by fascism, um, a lot of folks are looking for, for something else that might be a little bit less you know, in our, in our face or might not, oh, we'll just, other people will be bombed. We won't be bombed, but other, other people will be, will be bombed. And I can't, not in my name. I can't, I can't get behind that at all. I can't. So that's, that's where I'm at. And that's just the political landscape. And then you go into the personal and I feel like everything affects everything else. Like being stressed about this election I know has stressed out a lot of people and it, it permeates every aspect of one's life. I've been a lot more irritable, a lot more fidgety and angry and restless and sensitive. And I don't think sensitive is a bad thing though. Uh, I feel just more tender overall and everything else just makes it feel that much more deep. And then this year I've lost a number of friends and that's been difficult as well. I've been working on the whole grieving process and it's hard to, it's, it's even like with one person, you know, and then of course, but then when it's multiple people, especially within the queer community and like seeing people leave, choosing to leave um, because they don't feel like I can't speak for, I don't know how they feel. I can relate in a lot of ways where the world doesn't feel safe. People don't feel accepted. It feels like an uphill battle to be an artist in a capitalist society, to be seen, to be treated safely, to walk out the door and feel safe. A lot of folks don't feel that way. And I totally relate to that. And again, I'll, I also want to keep on reiterating that I have a ton of fucking privilege on top of that. So even with me like not feeling like I fit in most of the time and feeling like the whole world is backwards and problematic, on top of that, I still feel like I, I gotta, I'm a lot safer than most. So, you know, how does one reconcile that? How do we, how do we make sense of all that? It feels very, very difficult. And that's one thing I like about talking to activists and organizers, especially folks who have been around for a while, like talking to elders, because we know that this has been going on for a very long time, and maybe the tactics have changed, but we can learn a lot from folks who have been here before. And so Pam's been around for, um, she's been doing this work for over 45 years, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing how things have changed and what we can learn. And um, just, there's so much that we can learn. 
um, from from the folks who have come before, and I think we're really missing that. And as far as in the LGBT community, I think that's a huge we had a huge loss, of course, with uh, HIV and AIDS in the 1980s because we lost a whole generation of folks who would be out there. And I do th- there is the argument that well, if we hadn't had the HIV and AIDS crisis, the activist movement wouldn't have been born because we had to fight for that. Uh, and I also wonder, well, what if it, it hadn't happened at all? And we did have people who were around. We, had, we did have elders. Like, the world was shifted differently because those people were around. And others who are still around now didn't devote their lives to taking care of those folks who were dying. Like, if people didn't have that grief and they were here, they were present, what would San Francisco look like? What would America look like? What would the world look like? I, I think about that all the time. I don't really have any mentors and how nice it would be if I did. And there's a, there's a missing generation. They're gone. They're missing. And I feel like I can help out younger folks. And at the same time, I'm really missing out by not having an older generation of people to talk to, to look for, for advice as far as the LGBT identity goes. Um, and that makes me feel really sad. We'll be getting to some good articles today. I don't know if there's anything optimistic, to be honest. Uh, JD was speaking about, there's an article in Democracy Now! about uh, some police officers in Chicago who were whistleblowers. I, I do like whistleblowers. And they were threatened. Like, apparently the FBI was, you know, in with them to like so they could turn in some of their colleagues. And then after years and years of being tortured by their, their colleagues for wanting to speak up, the FBI just kind of left them alone and they had to suffer by themselves. I haven't read the full article. I can't give it a full um, analysis of it, but you can go check it out at Democracy Now! Perhaps we'll get to it by the end of the episode. There's a few articles I want to get to for sure. I'll probably just keep on talking until... (laughs) There's a lot I need to get out until Pam calls in at 12.30. Um, And then after the interview, then I'll select a few articles to read. You can always check out more news at weeklyreview.com slash weeklyrev. And perhaps I'll go over some of the article titles now, at least, so give us some fodder to think about. Um, yeah, something positive, I guess. I think it's positive. Um, there's been also a lot of think pieces going on about how the like substance abuse within the LGBT community and how a lot of folks turn to substances because we... I can't speak for everyone, but the idea of like not feeling like one fits in, and so then we turn to substances. <laughs> So that's really interesting, and that's in The Guardian. There also is a photo. Um, I'll read this quickly. (laughs) And it's people fighting back, which I totally dig. And you know what? People wouldn't have to fight back if people weren't being corrupt in the first place. That's the thing. And this came out um, officially. Well, it's been updated. Uh, This came out on October 19th from Counter Current News. Someone set $2 million in Dakota Access Pipeline construction equipment on fire. And this was written by the Counter Current News editorial team. And there's a picture of a tractor on fire. Jasper County, Iowa. For the second time in recent months, someone or some group has set fire to construction equipment at the Dakota Access Pipeline site in Resner, Iowa. The incident, which damaged an estimated $2 million in equipment, is being treated as arson. It's unclear who set the fire. Probably not Billy Joel. And there are currently no suspects identified. Despite the lack of evidence or suspects, Resner Assistant Fire Chief Don Steenhook laid the blame on Dakota Access Pipeline protesters. And Don says, It's pretty senseless, Steenhook told local news outlet KCCL. They're not getting back at the pipeline. They're just hurting the guys trying to make a living and put it in. One commenter dismissed Steenhook's statement to KCCI, saying, 
maybe the poor guys making a living should go find another job that doesn't destroy the environment and put millions of people's drinking water at risk. The suspected arson comes amid increased tensions between Native American water protectors, the Dakota Access Pipeline builders, and law enforcement across several states, especially North Dakota and Iowa. Hundreds of protesters have been arrested over acts of civil disobedience in their attempts to stop the pipeline's construction. The core issues surrounding Native American opposition to the pipeline stem from what tribes say are land rights issues, destruction of sacred sites, treaty violations, and the pipeline's potential to contaminate the drinking water of millions of people. Despite the Justice Department's order last month to halt pipeline construction on Army Corps of Engineers land, construction continues elsewhere on the $3.8 billion, 1,200-mile-long project. As Adam Mason of Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement points out, Native American protesters are not alone in their opposition to the pipeline. The Dakota Access Pipeline also faces opposition from environmental groups, landowners, ranchers, and farmers who have had their land seized through eminent domain and given to the private company building the pipeline, Dakota Access LLC. Amid crackdown on free speech at Dakota Access Pipeline site, anti-media heads to the front lines. Further, as we've reported recently, free speech is under assault by law enforcement in North Dakota at the site of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Hundreds of Native American water protectors have been arrested for civil disobedience, and Facebook blocked live videos of the crackdown. Journalists have been arrested by the dozens simply for reporting on the unfolding events. An arrest warrant for riot charges was issued against renowned progressive journalist Amy Goodman for her reporting in North Dakota. Thankfully, those charges have been dropped, but filmmaker uh, Dea Schlossberg hasn't been so lucky. She faces up to 45 years in prison for charges related to filming recent pipeline protests. So... I mean, that's the thing. If you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't be afraid of being videotaped. And I feel that way about a lot of these fucking corrupt cops, too. If you're not doing anything wrong, why should it matter that someone's watching you? Um, I, it's, I do think there's a lot of complexities and there's a gray area. And then this, there's, you know, it's like, which side are you on? Like, seriously. And yeah, I get that people are doing their jobs. And when your job involves fucking up the environment and with the potential of poisoning water for millions of people then maybe that's not a job that should be available. Even the fact that it is a job, it's like, are they not thinking? Do they not? I mean, it affects everybody. It affects everybody. Whew. Okay. I think it's time for a music break. And then we're going to talk to Pam. So that'll be great. Um, we're going to play some, uh, how about some instrumental music. I think that'll be pretty good. And then we'll be back in a little bit.
and welcome back to the weekly review. Um, we are joined by Pam Talley. Pam uh, has been an organizer and activist for over 45 years. Pam is fourth generation Chinese American and embraced the movement to expose and defeat the systems of oppression and exploitation associated with capitalism in the late 60s. Uh, the movement to end the racist imperialist war in Southeast Asia and the right to challenge white supremacy on campus and fight for ethnic studies were two key moments uh, that impacted Pam's commitment to working for a better world possible, better, better possible world. Uh, Pam has been a community organizer, labor organizer, instructor at CCSF, has worked in the field of environmental and occupational health at UC Berkeley School of Public Health for 20 years. Uh, Pam's now retired, but still an active social, uh, still active in social justice. And uh, Pam is also a caregiver for her mother. And also, uh, Pam is the founder and current chair of Chinese of the Chinese Progressive Association, a founder of the Asian Pacific Environmental Network and other groups. And Pam is associated with Asians for Black Lives and a, a member of a group called Left Roots. Uh, Pam went to Paris as a member of the grassroots of grassroots global justice and helped craft the principles of environmental justice to abolish environmental racism and achieve environmental justice. Ooh, so thank you so much for calling in, Pam. I'm very, very grateful to have you on the air. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we can get started. Um, there's so much that you've done in your life already, and I'm really inspired. And I was hoping we could just start off by talking about um, as you were growing up, what influenced you to start getting involved with activism? Sure. My roots uh, are, like I said, I'm a fourth generation uh, Chinese American, and my roots are in San Francisco Chinatown. Mm -hmm. uh, I got to spend a lot of time with my grandmother, who uh, raised my mom there and my uncles uh, on a street called Waverly mm -hmm. uh, Place. And so when you walk down, walk to Chinatown, you cross that street and you'll say, hey, that's where Pam's family grew up. Mm. Uh, the conditions that, uh, at that time while I was growing up uh, was really marked by uh, poverty. Uh, people, our family uh, moved into a, a single room occupancy. If you know what that is, yes. uh, it's a small room you know, with a shared kitchen and shared bathroom and, and um, a shower. Uh, and that uh, the rent uh, that you would pay for that uh, depended on how far or close you were to the toilet. Hmm. Um, so the closer you were to the toilet, you'd think that that would be advantageous, but it's not. Mm. Because the toilet is very dirty and stinky. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> uh, there'd be little things like that. Uh, there was no room for a refrigerator. Or, uh, so uh, a lot of the fresh things were bought that day and then uh, hung out of the windowsill so it stays cold, it doesn't get spoiled. Um, tuberculosis uh, was uh, very prominent in the community due to the poor air quality, uh, people working long hours, uh, lack of fresh air, uh, uh, especially for children, uh, play, play areas and things. So um, my dad had tuberculosis and then I had uh, a mild case when I was little. Uh, tuberculosis, uh, there's, there's mental illness 
uh, in our family and, and huge in the community. Uh, drugs, um, addiction. Uh, our family was also affected by that. Uh, my grandfather was a, a heroin addict. Uh, and uh, there was a, a, a lot of uh, violence. The period uh, when I was growing up, uh, it's the six square block. So if you ventured outside of those, uh, that area, uh, you, you uh, are very fearful uh, for about uh, getting attacked. And my mother would talk often about coming home from a job cleaning houses after school and um, kind of stepping over bodies of people who, men or who have been uh, beaten up or, or were dead. Mm. So those, those were the kind uh, that marked my experience. Yeah. Uh, one key one is being with my grandmother in the garment factory. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, being in the garment factories, uh, watching and being among the women, I was a little girl and there were other children there too, uh, where we watched our, our families uh, sew and uh, be really um, sometimes crying, uh, getting yelled at uh, by the, the boss man. Mm. Uh, so those, those uh, have made a deep impression on uh, how I understood the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. So then I, our family, when I was older, we moved out uh, of Chinatown to a predominantly, well, I was the only Chinese in the school, uh, that we moved to the Glen Park area. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. Uh, I was the only Chinese in the school for a long time, so mm. that was a huge culture shock to, sure. to move from a school that was all Chinese yes. to, a, to being the only Chinese. Um, and so that is when the onset in terms of um, internalized oppression, mm. uh, really the, the seeds for a lot of that yeah. uh, started to germinate. Um, and so I... that. That uh, being away from Chinatown and and then being ashamed then when my grandmother would talk to me in Chinese on the 26th Valencia bus uh, and then uh, other kinds of things that happened to me at the school um, that just then shaped another part of who I am. Uh, and then college came mm-hmm. in the late 60s. Mm. Uh, and, uh, my goodness. Yeah, good time to be in college. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, I feel badly for, uh, so many of the young people that did not have that experience. Yeah. Uh, 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 we were in college and that's where, uh, the, the free speech movements were happening in San Francisco. Uh, we had the, the, the period of the flower child and the hippies mm-hmm. right and then we ha- and then on campuses we had this struggle for um, uh, ethnic studies or third world studies yes uh, the, the black power movement mm-hmm. uh, really was uh, uh, surfacing and uh, and then the anti-war movement uh, was was 
thriving, and I uh, transferred to a four-year college out of City College, and and that that uh, that space uh, just really helped me find my humanity. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. things changed after that. Yeah. I'm talking too long. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's all interesting. And it's really, I think, great to have a historical context, too, um, for, for those of us who came after, just to recognize what it was like then and for the, the changes that were made. And also just mm-hmm. how important it is to like be in an environment that fosters that dialogue and uh, support of one another's ideas. Yes, it was uh, that support. Uh, I wanted to just mention a little bit, because I had heard heard just briefly uh, before I came on some of the things that you were talking about in terms of the, uh, some things that were happening and how could it inform uh, the current period. Yes, yes. Um, so I wanted, when you were saying that, one of the, the things that just came into my head uh, was coming out of a city college and just going to school by myself and just hanging around individually with friends. When I went to the four-year colleges, college, then there were groupings of people. People came together mm. in in different kinds of, of, of intentional groups, yeah, right, or organizations uh, or study circles, right, and that was so important. Uh, to be able to come out and, and challenge yourself to not just be an individual, uh, but to be working with other people yeah, uh, together and, and then growing that way and learning how to create community together, mm-hmm. uh, hold each other accountable, yes. understand the world together, yeah. uh, problem solve. And then when you do that, um, deciding to take action, right, of some sort, or make a presence, um, the 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 impact, uh, the power that you can feel from working together with others. Yes, uh, was something that, that I feel was very important for me to. Uh, to develop that part of my ability mm-hmm. uh, and to embrace that, right? Uh, the, the, the other thing that um, I realized when I went on, on campus uh, was talking together and studying together. We had study circles mm-hmm. and we would, we would talk with each other informally uh, discuss what was going on in the world and debate on how things were going. Yeah, and that that was that was really important. And then the third thing that I want to raise is the importance of the ask. Mm. Now I was at uh, a um, an anti-war meeting in Berkeley, and they were planning. We were Asian or a grouping to plan a rally at the huge Bank of America building on Kearney Street mm-hmm. to protest the war and also to support the, the liberation struggles 
of the Vietnamese people yes. uh, to kick out the U.S. imperialists, right? Um, and uh, to to uh, achieve self-determination. So we're sitting there, and uh, they were discussing the program. And the, uh, there was going to be three guys, Asian guys, to speak. And they were mainly going to be from the big colleges, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. UC Berkeley, and, and and so this uh, guy turned to me and then and said, um, "You know, Pam, I think that you should speak mm. at this rally." Yeah. And it, you know, it was like, mm, oh, what? And uh, you know, I just came to like be here and to learn what was going on, right? And. And then they said, "No, I think we think it's really important. We need we, we need a perspective from a woman, mm. right? Yeah. And we also needed a perspective in terms of not from the unit. I was at a state college, right? And and we were kind of out there in Hayward, right? And and so to be able to create have a presence of." The, the diversity of who we were in the Bay Area as Asian students. So I said, oh, okay, but what I want to say is that ask. It, it was so important mm. to have faith that somebody, that they, they kind of knew that I was active on campus, that, you know, but that to, to ask me to step up. Yes. Uh, that was the, 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 I think, for me, one uh, the third thing that came to my mind when you were talking earlier is the importance of that ask um, to to have people bring people in. Mm-hmm. So if you will recall, when I met you, yeah, yeah, <laughs> did I ask you to do something? Absolutely, and I was so happy to do it. <laughs> it was wonderful. I don't remember if you remember what I asked you to do. Oh, yes, to to hold one of the signs. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. to, yeah, to construct the, to cut the the string so that, yeah, to, like, make it so that uh, folks could wear the signs at the the Standing Rock uh, protest. Yes. The protest. But I wanted you to go around and talk to people, too. Yes, yes. (laughs) And and so that's, that's, in terms of it being... One thing that is important is to really bring other people in mm-hmm. uh, and and challenge each other to to step up um, step up internally and step up externally. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's important too because I feel there's a lot of people who would like to help. Um, it's in in variety of movements and are maybe just not sure how they can be of use or unsure how to approach it. So it is great to to go to, go to an event and have someone say, "Oh, this is there. Here are some concrete steps that you can do to be of service." Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. That you have to be thinking about that all the time. Mm-hmm. Not not to just have people be busy. Yes. Yes. But to to think about things in terms of what 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 needs to get done. Yeah. How how can people make this situation a a better, stronger, more intentional, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? Just to be thinking that way all the time. 
Because yes. move, movement building, what we're creating is a movement is developing relationships with each other yes. so that we can create a, a collective presence and we can have greater, greater impact. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, I was hoping you could talk about, um, in, in your bio, there's uh, the mention of uh, fighting you know, for the, the right to challenge white supremacy on campus. And that's something mm. that's still, unfortunately, still happening, um, yeah. just white supremacy everywhere. And I was curious about how things have changed um, since, since then. Oh. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a constant thing. Yeah. Uh, so... It, it, it changes, but it's still there. Yes. It just kind of, uh, kind of morphs into something else mm-hmm. sometimes, um, uh, but it's 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 still a, a present, and in in many cases, uh, the, the the kinds of education. That, well, so one of the things that. It struck me. I, I'm not on campus that much anymore, mm-hmm. but it's, it's striking me is just the, that uh, the white supremacy or the the, the ability to to um, have the kinds of rallies and presence that we had before is less. Mm. Uh, I feel before we we had in our period of time we had uh, really. We had office space, right? We had we, we we had rallies out on campus, right? Uh, and we weren't we, but we we created a power um, to get that. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that for for now, right now, uh, that there isn't that level of activism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a lot more restrictions, uh, you know, at, at UC Berkeley to be able to, for the Palestinian students to be able to speak out about what's going yes. on in, uh, with Gaza and the Palis- and in Palestine and yeah. to be able to talk about divestment. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you know, that, that, that you can't do that. Mm. I mean, to me, it's a setback. Yes, yes. Uh, so we, you know, we in the the period um, in the eighties and the nineties where we were, there was a divestment for South for South Africa, mm-hmm. all of these different kinds of things and the linkages and the solidarity among the groups. And yeah. the presence, uh, You know, it really made a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these kinds of um, uh, action activities, like at San Jose State where racist slogans are printed, you know, painted in fraternities or sororities or different club houses or public spaces. It's, um, um, I think that the campus atmosphere and the, the presence of white supremacy, it takes different forms, you know. Mm. Uh, before it was like, they wouldn't let us learn about our history, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, surfacing in, in different ways. I can't really speak on this as knowledgeable because I'm not on campus. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of what I catch yes. Uh, yes. in the news. Yeah. And I just feel, feel terrible. Yes. Um, <sighs> yeah. 
Oh, there was this. There was this one group that I was talking to at at UC Berkeley, and uh, called Bridges, mm-hmm. and they uh, help support uh, uh, students, uh, immigrant students, in, uh, and on campus to be able to get adjusted and all of that. And so she brought me down to the the, the little cubby holes where there were eight different groups just given eight different little tech desks mm-hmm. in this one little room. And I said, this is crazy. These eight different groups represent thousands of students on campus, and they put them in the basement, right, uh, all crammed together. And then the student government has this beautiful, on the fourth floor, this beautiful views and huge spaces and all of this room and all of the kinds of office facilities, right? Um, but to me, the work of those different eight groups, they deserve a floor themselves. Yeah. Each one of them deserves their own floor. Yes, yes. So, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get off of this now. Yeah. Oh, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot to talk about and there's, uh, yes, yes. Um, well, perhaps we could go into, um, talking about Standing Rock. I know that's jumping forward a bit, but perhaps we can talk about that for a little bit. Um, sure. in terms of how, um, just getting involved with that movement and then your experience, uh, over there in North Dakota. Okay. Well, I, I got involved, uh, around this movement uh, back in the late 90s mm-hmm. uh, around the formations of the environmental justice movement. Yes. And that brought together uh, uh, leadership from the various communities around the country, uh, the indigenous, the African-Americans, the Latino, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, Asians, uh, and internationally groups. Uh, from Mexico and uh, Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. other places, right? Uh, we came together and started to work uh, and know each other back in the, the 90s, and we uh, were for, um, created the principles of environmental justice and identified uh, the importance of building a movement that uh, would be a, grounded in, in a pretty anti-corporate, an anti-imperialist kind of grounding uh, with the intention of abolishing environmental racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the principles of Grace Lee Boggs, when she was, she would look at these principles, she would, she would turn to me and say, you know, these, these principles here lay the foundations for a, a future uh, 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 a constitution of a, of a new society, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, that's pretty good. Uh, but the, it started back in the, the 90s where we became, um, I developed a relationship with folks in the Indigenous Environmental Network. And over the years, we've done a lot of uh, uh, alliance and, and, and for us, me, being an ally uh, uh, to many of the, the issues that have been raised, whether it was uranium mining uh, uh, in the Navajo, Diné, mm-hmm. uh, or in the Havasupai Canyon, 
Uh, more recently, it's around issues of cap and trade uh, and the selling of uh, indigen forests where indigenous uh, uh, people live mm -hmm. uh, locally and internationally, uh, the selling of forests to the corporations mm -hmm. um, as a way to for them to say that they're helping the environment. Uh, and then most recently uh, with the Standing Rock. Yes. Uh, and then with Standing Rock, how I, I really came to feel it was important to, to uh, support what was going on is that uh, I was part of a delegation with IEN and others to the Paris uh, Climate Talks in December. Yes. And returning from that horrible, um, like just the discussions among our so-called world leaders where they failed to come up with an agreement that's really going to adequately address climate change. Mm -hmm. um, coming back and, and, and understanding, all of us understanding that it's going to be the people on the ground who are directly impacted. Yes. Uh, that is going to make the difference. And so in April, when the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Tribe uh, uh, raised the whole issue of the uh, pipeline going through their area and threatening the waters, um, and the, the women leaders there coming together and saying, we need to take a stand. And um, in particular, uh, LaDonna Allard uh, Brave Bull offering the land that she lives on as a space to take a stand. Mm -hmm. The camps yes. emerged in April. Okay. When that happened, uh, it was for me really an expression of this is exactly what needs to happen coming out of the failed climate talks. Yes. Um, and then that is when uh, kind of I uh, sending, you know, words of support, but then realizing there are, what, what can we do to actual uh, concrete support? So I started to raise uh, funds mm -hmm. uh, for Standing Rock, but also helping uh, organize local actions yes. in support of Standing Rock. And that's where I met you. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so out of those activities, uh, the folks at Standing Rock re reached out and said, you know, Pam, you need to come up uh, and, uh, and, and, and join us here. And uh, I thought about it. And I, I decided, uh, uh, yeah, let me consider going up to Standing Rock. But when you when I go up to Standing Rock, uh, how how can I make sure that the solidarity that I want to express is genuine solidarity? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did end up going. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that's really important with the you know, how matching in, intention with action and mm. going back to, I guess what we we're talking about before, how does one really show up and, 
in a in a heart centered space. Yes. Yes. So let's uh, fast forward to being at Standing Rock. Yes. And, yeah, and I'm very um, curious to hear about that. Uh, being at Standing Rock, I was part. I uh, was talking to my friends uh, and and folks at the Chinese Progressive Association about uh, going up there and thinking about it. And uh, during the course of the discussion, uh, it it was then kind of uh, grew and evolved into, well, Pam, if you go up there, why don't we go, why don't we send a delegation mm-hmm. from Chinatown? Mm. And so what it was is because when I went to Paris, we had we were there from from Chinatown, and you know it's like from the streets of San Francisco Chinatown to the streets of Paris, right? Mm-hmm. And then along the same thing from the streets of Chinatown, San Francisco Chinatown, to the Standing Rock Camp. Uh, what are we there for, right? And so we we intentionally sat down and drafted. So so we got there's three of us representing from from directly from the Chinese Progressive Association, but then we also had uh, friends uh, who also joined our delegation. And then our delegation joined with um, grassroots global justice. And we went up uh, uh, together. Um, But we crafted a, a statement to be able to have intention of why we're going to Standing Rock and and being a part of indigenous solidarity. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, you know, it's printed. It's in, it's it's on our on our website. Um, but we talked about the linkages, and the uh, the solidarity, and uh, that from our communities that. Everybody is concerned about the climate. Yes. Well, uh, and and the and what what can be done about it, right? Um, and then, in particular for California, right, the whole issue of uh, the protecting the waters with, and the impact of the drought in California. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, but we we talked about it in terms of the. The, the drought, limited resources in the Central Valley, the, the migrant, climate migrants that are happening because of the drought or the farm workers, mm-hmm. people who, you know, work the farms or other are having to, to leave, right, migrate to someplace else. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also talked about we, in our delegation, our, 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 we represent like families who grow uh, their own vegetables for subsistence mm-hmm. but to be able to raise the families. And in Sacramento, for example, where one of our uh, delegate uh, representatives came from, she, her family depends on that garden to feed, to, to have fed as she was growing up, uh, their family. This is nine people in their family. Mm-hmm. So now, when they grow, when they use, when they uh, plant their garden, uh, they have to be very careful because if they 
they get penalized for water use. Hmm. But, um, uh, so that 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 uh, kind of uh, penalty for water use to grow vegetables uh, that for their family, and that is what they they really rely on for yeah. food, right? Yes, yes. So the, so we 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 raised a lot of that, and then the third thing that we raised is um, the fascination of the the, the Western the, the Europeans with um, for when uh, we have this we have Christopher Columbus right mm-hmm. Christopher Columbus was uh, seeking trade routes routes to China and to India <laughs> but on their and so on their way to China and India they came across um, Turtle Island right mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know this resulted in the colonization and the genocide of indigenous people. Um, and But that was a, a part of the fascination to get to Asia. And from our delegation, uh, we had a Vietnamese a family, a, a woman who's born in Viet- Vietnam, mm-hmm. and also among Laotian mm-hmm. uh, representative, and they talked about the colonization of their countries and the war mm. of the uh, that U.S. and the and the colonization uh, impacting their their countries, their histories, their cultures, mm. uh, and when and then why they were had to to their arrival to the United States as a result of war and, and, and genocidal practices uh, in Southeast Asia. Right? So that, that whole uh, kind of interconnections uh, had a very powerful impact mm. uh, on folks at the camp. Yes, yes. And so when we finished our presentation, uh, the keeper of the fire circle and, and the microphone <laughs> uh, uh, said to the, took the mic, turned to the whole group and said, "Relatives, we must we must welcome them into our family." Mm. So, uh, mm. so uh, that is, you know, in terms of us going to uh, Standing Rock. Uh, you must not only answer the question of why are you here, yeah, but you also must be able to answer the question of who are you. Yes. Right. Wow. Um, so we were, we were talking a little bit before about um, some things that came up for you when you were heading back um, from the camp mm-hmm. in terms of how it's really in everyone's best interest, even the folks who are working to build the pipeline, that the pipeline does not get built in terms of future generations and how the powers that be often want to pit, you know, people against one another. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the areas of work that uh, I have been involved in is uh, worker health and safety. Mm-hmm. And that I uh, would have done work with people working in refineries. Yes. And uh, these were workers that were uh, 
getting sick uh, and in some cases dying yeah. from the uh, exposures to the toxins in the refineries. Mm. And also um, uh, families, uh, a lot of impact on the families because of the stress in working in these refineries, the high stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that what we were, what I came to realize is working with these workers that um, they, they were, they understood the contradictions between them mm-hmm. and their employers. Mm-hmm. And that their employers were working them even though they were getting very high pay, yeah, um, the conditions and the sacrifices that they were making, often they were saying, you know, is is it worth it? Yeah, this this work is very very dangerous. Yes. So there, there is like a a contradiction that the workers would see between them and their employers. Yes. But when it comes to the environment. Hmm then the employers are able to then uh, uplift the, the threat of plant closures, loss of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, all of a sudden, in terms of the contradiction that the workers see with the employers, all of a sudden they, they, they become um, kind of um, brought in to the enemy side, right? Yes. And they become allies with with the employer against the community. Yes. And in this case, uh, it's the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, right? Uh, so that is there. There is an um, a situation there that I feel can be uh, exposed, yes. and that the workers. Uh, that there that there is a way for them to understand that mm-hmm. the siding with their employer has never been in their interest. Yes, yes. And that siding with their employers in this situation will not be in their interest either if the water is poisoned. Yes. Right. Um, so coming back from, from, Biz, from Bismarck, uh, I, you can see in the airport, like, um, baseball caps, drill, baby, drill. This is oil comfort. Oh. Right. Uh, you go to the read the newspaper, the local newspapers talked about, you know, how the workers are being threatened, right, mm. by the, the, the activities, uh, uh, the, the, the riots and, and things, all of these distortions, things that are not happening. I mean, these are distortions, right, that are, and, and lies that are in the newspaper to fan up. Uh, the local community, and then so you'll read in different op-ed pieces or whatever. The local community said, "Well, you know, we should pack guns, right?" Um, uh, so these this kind of like um, uh, ramping up of um, distortions, lies, and false false um, interests, right? And uh, in terms of the interest of the workers and the and the, the, the companies, the the Dakota Access Pipeline folks, them being together, right? That kind of unity. Um, that that is um, 
the, the, the conditions in which the water protectors and the defenders of the land are, are up there dealing with. Um, but I feel that when I was there, you could at the camp, you know, that that uh, what is what is really present is defending the water, but also a um, embracing the concept of keep fossil fuels in the ground, keep uranium in the ground, right? Keep coal in the ground, that there can be a transition away from those kinds of extractive systems for energy to renewable sources of energy. So when I was there, there was wind. The last, the, the week before I was there, there was heavy, heavy wind. Tents were just blown down and broken and, and everything. Uh, 20 mile an hour winds. Uh, when I was there, it wasn't 20 mile an hour, but still tents were just flying off all over the place. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I realized is that that pipeline, the, the, the operative benefit of that pipeline, maybe it's going to be about eight years of oil transfer, right? But what is in South Dakota is wind. Yes, yes. What is in South Dakota is sun. <laughs> you know, uh, and so these can be harnessed and that jobs can be created um, and that these are would be local jobs because right now the pipeline is being built by people by construction people who come in yes. to the area there's not necessarily local jobs yeah and that kind of reminds me of cops who police neighborhoods they don't live in. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that is some of the coming back and reflecting on that is like a greater commitment for me to be able to talk and understand other sources of energy mm-hmm. that doesn't rely on extracting things from Mother Earth. Right. Yes. And stopping this pipeline, that it's going to put millions of tons of CO2 into the air, right? Mm-hmm. How is this helping and holding back addressing uh, global warming? Yeah. It, it's contributing to it, right? But the other thing that the pipeline represents is the poisoning of the water. Yes, yes. Because it's not... If it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. Yeah. Whew. Are you okay? Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> There's always a point on the show when I just get overwhelmed and or reach a point where it's like I know it's coming at some point, but I'm never sure exactly what piece of information or thought is going to really either set me over the edge or, uh, you know, it's, But you know yeah. what I want to tell you is that that's the other thing I wanted to, to, to say to you is that Standing Rock and the people, when, what has happened there, when you go to Standing Rock, you are uplifted. Mm. When you go to Standing Rock, you are transformed. Mm. When you go to Standing Rock, you can think of what a better future could be like. Yes. 
when you see people coming together yeah. to this camp, um, that the, the decisions of the camp is made by a council, mm-hmm. and on the council is, is uh, Grandma Wanona, who's in charge of the kitchen, right? And you see from the council is the firekeeper, a young man mm-hmm. from the you know from one of the supporting tribes like yeah it, it, these are regular people like you and me making decisions mm. about what's going to happen up there mm. right? and you're inspired and you know oh we can do this yeah so we can do this and so that standing rock has brought together 200 tribes wow Tribes that haven't talked to each other in hundreds of years, mm. right? That are coming together oh. and signed in a treaty. Every day when we were there, a tribe would come, and when a tribe comes in, there is an entry. They, they, they enter. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just don't mean to. They they enter as a tribe. And it is so powerful. Mm. And they come to the fire circle, and then there is ceremony, and there is song, there is prayer, and together in a healing and an uplifting together, right? Uh, that is happening there. Mm. Right? So there's there's that's what Standing Rock is is humanity. In it, in it, at it, there's a lot, it's, it's a big challenge. Yes. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's what, our, it, sh- it shows the potential. Nation, as allies there, uh, you, know, you go there making sure that you, you bring greater, you know, you, you bring something to the camp. So we are as allies. We go there and we say, okay, we are here to help whatever it is you need us to do. Direct action. Yeah. Help with the day-to-day functioning of the camp, whether it's the cooking or the art circle. Yeah. Helping with the media. Yeah. The communications. You know, all of those things. What Being like transportation to and from places for grandma to go and do her laundry, bring a bath, you know. All of these things, uh, it's it's uh, very beautiful mm. and uplifting. We can create that day to day here for each other too. Yes, that's so important to remember. I think we're at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, there's a lot to think about. Whew. I, I really appreciate everything that you've shared. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so um, much for calling in. I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. No, I'm finished. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, one more thing. Yes, one please. One more thing I wanted to, to, to share with you when I came back is in one of the ceremonies, uh, a, a tribe came in. Uh, from the Havasupai, mm-hmm. and he's an elder, and and one of the things that struck me, he said, uh, you know, 
uh, we as a people, we know that all we need to live, all it is that we need to live is water, rock, wood, and fire. Hmm. That, those four things. Water. For me, I added to water, rock, wood, and fire, I added, we need each other. Yes. And then the third thing, the, the next thing is, and we need each other coming from a place of love. Yes. Yeah. Oh. So that's what I want to end with. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Oh, those are words to remember and words to live by. Yes. Thank you so much for calling in, Pam. You're welcome. Have a good day. Thank you. You as well. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to Pam Towley for calling in and for sharing that uh, information with us. Um, We're going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll be back uh, with more on the program in a little bit.
Welcome back to the Weekly Review. That is one of my favorites, Peter Gabriel with Digging in the Dirt. Uh, it works on many levels. Uh, of course, the idea, literally digging in the dirt, Thinks, thinking about pipelines. But um, this is more, I guess, the metaphorical sense and talking about relationships and looking back and thinking about places that were wounded and seeing how sometimes wounds open up and going back to see where we're coming from and to try to heal the parts of ourselves that may have been exposed and to look at our own behavior and reactions to what we what we go through and what we experience and to try to heal ourselves and take care of ourselves. So that's always been one of my favorite songs. Uh, I like a lot of his songs, though. <laughs> but that's been on my mind a lot, too, that song. And just, yeah, trying to, trying to work through things and also figure one's own stuff out in the meantime. So I'm going to read a positive news story whether you like it or not, and hopefully you'll like it. I don't know. Maybe there are some folks who listen to the show and they want to hear really sad news stories. I don't know. I mean, it's. I like to provide some positive news, and I always joke. I don't know if it's a joke, and I don't know if it's always. So strike that last sentence. See, I'm, I'm so much more, I'm happier after this, the, the, the interview and just and talking with Pam and this idea really of like coming together, and I know it's easy to isolate. I do that as well, too. Uh, I think part of the American culture is this idea, oh, we can do anything on our own and independently and without help from others. And 
I think there's a, a move to do that in a lot of ways to withdraw and uh, for a variety of reasons. And then when one's able to open up and to share information, things get a lot better. And when we help each other, and that's better. And I know it's easier said than done, um, but it's also just really important to recognize that, that that's there. <sighs> so I... I don't, I don't necessarily joke, and it's not necessarily always, but the whole point of this show, not the whole point of the show, but one thing that is common about it is that the positive news stories are pretty much when things are happening to prevent bad things from happening, or perhaps there's a situation that's occurring that's violent or tumultuous, and then there's actions taken to stop that or to change that or to have it evolve in a, in a, to a peaceful resolution. And that's where this story lands, and it's from Haaretz, and this came out on... Uh, October 20th. And the title is, We Cannot Count on Men to Create Peace. We Have to Do It Ourselves. And that's probably true with a lot of things. When Molly was a co-host of the show for the first year, um, I kept on going on and on about women taking over the world in a good way and women leading the charge. And I still totally believe that and how... Um, even in this, this election, granted, I'm not too, too into like politics and voting and all that because I do feel like the system's fucked. And it almost doesn't matter who we have in office. If the system is corrupt, it won't matter who we have in there if it's not working to actually, for people to speak up. You know, if, if people aren't being represented, then it doesn't matter who's there. Um, however, I do love the idea of, like, female leadership. And what if, like, men couldn't vote for a while? Like, <laughs> that, would be, that would be part of it. Um, that would not solve everything at all. So not even that. But just if there are more women in, in, in roles of leadership, even, I think that would be really awesome. So the title, We Cannot Count on Men to Create Peace, We Have to Do It Ourselves. At the culmination of the two-week cross-country march, Israeli and Palestinian women vow to continue their struggle until an agreement is reached. Super awesome. And this was written by Ida Prince-Gibson. And again, this came out on October 20th. They have a photo of folks hold in a circle holding hands. How beautiful is that? From a celebration at the Dead Sea to a march through the streets of Jerusalem to a demonstration outside the Prime Minister's residence, thousands of Israeli and Palestinian women Wednesday marked the conclusion of the March of Hope. The march was organized and sponsored by Women Wage Peace, a nonpartisan women's group founded in 2014 in the aftermath of Operation Protective Edge in Gaza, which, according to its flyers, calls for an agreement that will be respectful, nonviolent, and accepted by both sides. We will not stop until a political agreement which will bring us, our children and grandchildren, a safe future is reached, said, says their website. Organizers say the group is funded mainly by small donations from Israel and abroad, as well as by Women Donors Network in the United States. The cross-country March of Hope began on October 5th, when some 2,500 women walked the first five-kilometer segment from Rosh Hanikra on the Lebanese border to Aksiv Beach, north of Naharia. Every day since then, women have participated in five to ten kilometer walks in different locales throughout the country, including one group that walked and biked in segments uh, from Eilat to the area abutting the Gaza Strip. Wednesday's events began at Qasir al-Yahud, the site where Jesus is believed to have been baptized by John the Baptist. I didn't know that. Some 2,500 Jewish and Arab-Israeli women arrived on buses from all over the country from as far away as the Sea of Galilee to and the, the Negev and Arava deserts. They were joined by more than 1,000 Palestinian women from the West Bank. And they have another uh, photo here in the article. Lots of people. According to Ziad Darwish, a member of the Palestinian Committee for, in, for Interaction with the Israeli Society, which operates under the auspices 
of the Fatah party, the Palestinian women received political and financial support from Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud, Mahmoud Abbas and the Authority itself, which paid for the chartered buses, water, and hats with a Dove logo that the women wore, many over their hijabs. Because Qasir al-Yahud is a religious site, an on-duty policeman explained to Haritz, as he watched the gathering from a distance, a permit to convene is not required for neither the Israeli nor the Palestinian women. The atmosphere was celebratory, almost heady, despite the searing heat as a women's drumming group set the rhythm. When the Palestinian women came off the buses, many were embraced by Israeli women. Others formed impromptu dance circles. Today, I have Israeli Jewish sisters, said Miriam, a 35-year-old teacher from near Janine. Enthusiastically, she clapped along as others danced. Miriam acknowledged that she didn't want to give her full name because not everyone in my family agrees, especially not the men who don't want women to express themselves. She added, I came here even though I had to take off a day from work because I do not want anyone to be killed, not by soldiers, not by terrorists. We women want peace and security for everyone, and I know that most people in Palestine think like me. Fadwa Shir from Ramallah added, We cannot count on men to create peace. <laughs> we will have to do it ourselves. But what about non-normalization, which some Palestinian activists cite for their refusal to meet with the Israeli civil society counterparts? This gathering is not normalization, Shia retorted. We are political women calling on our leaders to reach a political agreement. I am very proud to be here. Lima Gbowi, the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize laureate and leader of the women's activists and leader of the women's activism that brought an end to Liberia's bloody civil war was Women Wage Peace's guest of honor. Men tried to demean women's activism as if it isn't important, as if it isn't the real stuff, she said in a brief interview with Haaretz. But guns and bombs not, are not aimed only at men. Women suffer real pain. Um, and we have real things to say, and women have the ability to come together and bridge our divides, and that is very real, very political, and very powerful. Later, speaking from the podium, Gbowi energized the crowd despite the oppressive heat. If you cannot see hope, if you cannot see peace, then you are blind, she said forcefully as the crowd rose to its feet, cheering and applauding. You must reject the narrative that war is the destiny of our children. War is easy. Making peace is hard. But sisters, today you've made history. No one will be able to ignore your call for peace anymore. Hind Khoury, an economist who has served as the Minister of Jerusalem Affairs in the Palestinian Authority and was a Delegate General of the Palestinian Liberation Organization to France from 2006 until 2010, also challenged the crowd. This is women's power at its best, she said. But will you last? Will you do the hard work? The hard part begins tomorrow. Will you keep up the hope in our region that is plagued with violence and despair? The 50 years of rule over the Palestinian people from cradle to grave cannot go on, said Corey. Our people are ready for peace. President Abbas is ready for peace. We women have come together to tell all our leaders to work towards a negotiated agreement. In addition to these and other speakers, singers Yael Dekelbaum and Miriam Tukan performed. The event was emceed by Hamutal Gori, a women's activist and a women wage peace leader, and Huda Ab Aborakub, uh, regional director of the Alliance for Middle East Peace and a resident of Hebron. Gori concluded the ceremony at Kazir on her own children, mother generations.
Many of the women returned to Jerusalem, where, joined by others, they formed a crowd of 5,000 that marched from the city entrance to the square near the prime minister's residence for the concluding demonstration. Over the next few days, the organization will set up a peace tent on this spot. Since its inception, Women Wage Peace has maintained a nonpartisan stance, calling for a peaceful political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict without siding with any particular option. The world does not need another peace plan. There are already many excellent plans, Gori explained to Haaretz. What we need is true intent to make peace. And that is what we women are demanding from our leaders, determination and courage to engage in peace negotiations. This big tent approach, the women believe, will enable them to broaden their support base beyond its natural left-wing constituency. Indeed, Harasa Froman, widow of Rabbi Menachem Froman, and her daughter-in-law, Mikal, who was pregnant when she was wounded in a stabbing attack by a Palestinian in January, both spoke at the demonstration. The two women, who live in the West Bank settlement of Tekoa, were warmly welcomed by the crowd. There is great energy here, and it can bring us to to a new way to change, said Hadassah Froman. She, as she held her infant daughter, Mikhail Froman, added, I believe that peace as we want it to be will come from a place where we can see what is possible and what is impossible. The right can be, can be part of peace too. Oh, the right, <laughs> the right can be part of peace too. Life will be better here if we stop seeing ourselves as the victims of terror or the victims of the occupation. We all have to get over this and begin to work hard. Arukob, I'm so sorry for not pronouncing this name correctly, um, Abu Abura Kwab, uh, also spoke to the crowd. I came as a Palestinian woman from the occupied territories to say, enough is enough. It's time for peace and security for both people. You saw this morning how many Palestinian women joined you. I am here as Palestinian to say clear and loud, you have a partner. All right. So you can check out this article again. It's on Haaretz and it was written by Ita Prince Gibson. So... It's just very much in line with what Pam was, was speaking about with folks really coming together and helping each other out. And that's the way to do it. So that's that's pretty awesome. Um, I'll go over a couple more headlines and then get in the vote voting. The voting is coming up. So I'll go over little brief snippets from pissed off voter guide for folks who want to vote early and or write some stuff down as they prepare to vote. Uh, the Guardian uh, talks about a story we were talking about earlier about Standing Rock, how documentary filmmakers face decades in prison for taping oil line p- pipeline protests, oil pipeline protests. That's uh, Daya 